Hey, good morning. Um, I want to start off with a confession to you this morning. It's a self-indulgent confession, so just bear with me. Uh, about three weeks ago, I started writing my Easter message, because you know Easter is like the Super Bowl for church, right? You know this. And, uh, and I got to tell you, I started writing, and I'm writing, and I get done, basically. And I look at the message, and I was like, this is boring. Like, it's really boring. And I was like, man, why is this Easter message boring? And then I started thinking, like, maybe I'm just bored by Easter, and that felt weird. Um, it's like, you know, you win, you're like, I'm nominated for an Academy Award, and I go to the Oscars, and people are like, how do you feel? And you're like, bored, <laughs> right? Or like, baseball season just started. Any baseball fans? I feel like I never have any baseball fans with me. All three of you, thank you. <laughs> but you know, like, you know, there's 162 games over eight months, and the goal is to get to the World Series, and you get to the World Series, and it's like, how are you? And I'm so bored. Right? It's got that feeling to it. So during Easter, I was a little bored. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it is I'm bored about. So I asked a kid, and this kid was around seven years old, and I said, hey, what does Easter mean? And this child said, they said, well, Easter is when Jesus dies, but then Jesus comes back to life, and then Jesus died for my sins. That's what they said. And I was like, yeah, I think, I think I've been saying that same message since I was seven years old. Jesus died for my sins. And when I thought about that, Jesus died for your sins, Jesus died for your sins, that's, that's everywhere. Like, that's on billboards. It's on, like, churches. It's on bumper stickers. How many people have seen that somewhere? Yeah, I feel like, I'm, and this is going to sound bad, but I feel like it sort of jumped the shark. So, so I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. Because it didn't jump the shark. I mean, it matters, right? But I think it was the way I've been taught what Easter means, right? And I think what I've been taught is this idea that, that man, I'm such a sinful and bad person, and, and God doesn't really like me, and so Jesus isn't so much a life uh, as much as, a, as Jesus is a transaction. And so Jesus, the transaction, dies and then is raised again so that I can be seen as God by good, uh, by God as good. And I'm like, huh, you know, God really doesn't like me that much. And then we sing this song, and it goes, till on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And I was like, is God so wrathful that God needs to kill Jesus, have him rise again so that I can, I can be in God, God's good graces? Like, it just, it just didn't sit right. It just did not feel right. I did not know what to do with it. And so then I came across this, uh, this quote, and it's from a fellow pastor, which made me feel a little bit better. I felt like I wasn't going crazy. And it said this, it said, one of the problems with the tidy atonement theories is that they allow us to brush off our hands and say, that's it, all done. It's too much like Pilate washing his hands. No, the crucifixion of Christ must remain enough of a mystery that it always calls us to take a second look. And so that's what I decided I wanted to do, and that's what I hope you'll do with me today. I want to take a second look at what this resurrection means and I got to tell you, when I started to take a second look, some things started to happen. Uh, I went to the March for Lives rally last week. And I was at the March for Lives rally. Maybe some of you were there. There were 100,000 of us. And, uh, and we're marching. And my eight-year-old daughter's with me. And so I'm with her. And, uh, and my eight-year-old daughter, I just look at her. And all of a sudden, like, it took everything in me not to cry. Um, I did, like, one of, like, the, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like, I did one of those because I was like, man, we're marching, we're out here marching because kids my daughter's age have been, have been shot and killed. Like, they're, they died. And, and it just struck me. And I was like, I want an Easter that's big enough for that. That gives me hope in that. And then a couple of days later, uh, Stefan Clark, he, he shot 20 times. And he shot 20 times because he's holding a cell phone and people think it's a gun. And, and, and this isn't about law enforcement. What this is about is hundreds upon hundreds of years 
of, of injustice, of systemic injustice against people of color that leads to that happening, right? And, and so that made me sad, and, and I'm broken, and I'm, like, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, again, it's happening again. And I, and I said, I want my Easter to be big enough for Stefan Clark and for Eric Garner and for anybody else that has been killed because of years and years and years of systemic injustice. That's what I, I want my Easter to be that big. That's as big as I want it to be. And then my wife, she, she showed me this blog uh, by this woman, this, this blogger. Her name is Erna Kim Hackett. And this is what Erna Kim Hackett writes. She says, I need an Easter that has something to say to the young queer believers who are considering suicide instead of coming out. I need an Easter that addresses patriarchy. I need an Easter that sees and helps undocumented people whose families are being torn apart. I need an Easter that addresses mass incarceration and the for-profit prison system. I need an Easter that doesn't just talk about living water but gets clean water to places like Flint. I need an Easter where sexual violence against women, especially women of color, is talked about openly and addressed courageously. That's the kind of Easter I need. And I looked at Juby. I said, I'm rewriting my message. And I did. <laughs> so you're getting a... A message that's not prepared very well. <laughs> but here's what dawned on me. And I want to tell you what dawned on me. And what dawned on me was so important that I wanted to write it down and read it. And this is it. What dawned on me is this. When we talk about Easter as being about forgiving our sins, it's possible that my biggest sin, the thing that Jesus dies for, the thing that overwhelms my heart and soul right now, has less to do with my personal wretchedness and more to do with the broken systems I'm embedded in, I participate in, and that impact me in the communities that I love. And I want Easter to be for that. Now, I want to tell you this. Some of us come here, we come to church once a year on Easter, and that's great. I'm really, really glad you're here today, and I'm being serious. And sometimes we just want to hear that Jesus died for our sins. We want to hear that the brokenness we have in our lives, the things that, that keep us stuck or keep us running in place, we want to hear that there's hope that that might change. And I want to tell you, there is hope that that can change through the resurrection. But as a church, I've been saying the resurrection is both personal and communal, and I want our Easter to be that way. So I started to explore what it means for our Easter to be both personal and communal. I started to pray, I started reading, and I just started thinking. And then I came across a passage that blew my mind. And it's a passage I think you all know, and it's a passage that has absolutely nothing to do with Easter. All right? Yeah, I'm going to read it for you. Um, and you can tell me if you heard this or not. It goes like this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek... Turn to them the other cheek also. How many people have heard that before? We say that sometimes, right? We talk about it, we say it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to break that, that down because I think that passage has way more to do with Easter than it simply being about Jesus dying for my sins. Right? It has way more to do with Easter, and I want to explain to you how it has way more to do with Easter. Um, uh, if you've been to this church for a while, we say this. We say we, be, we take the Bible so seriously that we can't just take it as words on a page. We have to dive into the context and the culture around the Bible. So if we're going to break this passage down, I need you to dive into culture and context with me. And so what we know is we know that Israel is under the thumb or under the rule of the Roman Empire. We know that. And the Roman Empire said, you know what, Israel, you are so far out there, because they're pretty far out there, that you're, we're going to let the Sadducees rule you. How many people have heard of Sadducees before? Sadducees, a few of us. Sadducees were the religious Rulers. They were the religious rulers of the day. They were the ones who were like the bishops or your clerics or whatever you want to call them. Uh, my mom, when I was a kid, used to make me sing a song, and I say it to you all the time whenever I bring up Sadducees, I don't want to be a Sadducee because Sadducees are sad, you see. <laughs> Every time, and I'll never stop bringing that up. 
Sadducees were the rulers over Israel. And Sadducees, like I said, were religious, so they're charged to keep religious order. And so part of that is to collect a temple tax, and that temple tax is going to feed the poor. That's what God commands us in the scriptures, especially in Leviticus. He says, you're going to do that, you're going to collect this temple tax, it's going to feed those who have less. And um, what the Sadducees do is they give some of that money to Caesar, and then they give uh, other of that money to themselves. And they basically just start living this lavish lifestyle. And in fact, the lifestyle was so lavish that a couple of years ago, archaeologists dug up some places where Sadducees inhabited, and they found bottles of wine worth like $5,000 in today's money. So like, it was like $5,000 back then, um, whatever that looks like. And they didn't find one or two. They found like hundreds of these bottles of wine, which means that the Sadducees were taking money from the poor and living incredibly large, all right? It was a racket. It was nationalism. It wasn't religion. So what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus starts to say things that subvert the kingdom of the Sadducees. He starts to say, hey, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant first. And then he says stuff like, um, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And then he starts feeding people, and I talked about this last week. He's feeding 4,000. He's feeding 5,000. If you are not getting any money when you're supposed to get money, and you're starving, you are going to follow Jesus because Jesus is feeding you. Right? So that's why he's getting this gathering. It's a matter of need. People need help. They need to survive. They need to live. And so Jesus gives that. And then, and then Jesus starts speaking this, this Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, you've heard religion say this, but I'm going to tell you it looks very different. And that's when he says, you've heard it say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, someone who's evil slaps you across the face, turn your other cheek. Now, I had no idea about this, but this speaks to Easter so well. Did you know there was a hierarchy of hitting at the time of Jesus? Did you know that? Neither did I. There's a hierarchy of hitting at the time of Jesus. And here's what Jesus is saying. I used to think it was Jesus saying, like, be nonviolent. If somebody hits you, just let them hit you. And there was a nonviolent aspect to Jesus, right? But in the time of Jesus, what would happen is if you were higher, if you had power, if you were on a higher social level, you were allowed to, anybody who, has a low, who was on a lower social level, you were allowed to hit them. And the way you were allowed to hit them was a, right, a backhand to the right cheek. So Jesus even says, if they hit you on the right cheek, you know, that's what he says, turn your other cheek. You were allowed to hit them with a backhand to the right cheek. And what that meant is, I'm better than you, I have more power than you, I'm more loved than you, I'm more valued than you. You could do that anytime you wanted. That's what, that's what happened. Now, there's another rule that said, if you fight someone straight up with fists, if you do that... Well, that means they're on equal plane with you. Somebody you fight straight up with fists is on equal plane. Now, you acknowledge them as an equal, and you say that as an equal, we're going to fight this way, we're going to fight for honor. And then there was a third thing. If you refuse to fight, if you refuse to fight, it meant you were conceding that the person was greater than you. So you have these three things. You have the backhand slap, which means I'm more powerful. You have the fist, which means we're on equal plane. And then you have refusing to fight, which means the person I'm refusing to fight is greater than me. So Jesus... He says, when somebody, he's talking to the poor and those with less, he goes, when somebody backhands you, turn the other cheek. Now, think about what that does, right? Because their right cheek's exposed, but now they turn, the, they turn the other cheek, turn the other one. And now, with the other cheek, you can't do a right-handed backslap anymore. And the left hand was considered dirty for reasons we won't talk about here, <laughs> okay? So it wasn't even a thing that they were going to hit with a left hand. So now, if you wanted to strike that person again who has turned their other cheek, you have to do like one of these. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
what happens now? Well, now the person that struck you with their right hand now has two choices to make. Choice number one, they could fight you like this, which means you're now on equal plane with them. Choice number two, they could choose not to fight you at all, which means you're on a higher plane with them. Do you see what Jesus is doing by a simple command of turning the other cheek? He is subverting an entire structure. He's subverting an entire system. He's saying that you who think you have no power, you who are marginalized, you who are oppressed, you who are a part of unjust systems, you, you are loved by God more than you even know. You are a child of God more than you even know to the point where if somebody tries to slap you and tell you less, then turn that other cheek and show them otherwise. He's subverting a system. What else is he doing? What else is he doing? He is telling people who are pursuing power, and I mean just pursuing power for themselves, that in God's kingdom, power is not pursuit for yourself. Power is pursuing that power for others. He's saying it's not about having power for yourself. It's about giving that power to others. We're creating equity and equitable lives. And then thirdly, what he's doing, he's saying the unjust power structure that would allow somebody to slap you in the first place, that unjust power structure is gone. It's going to be abolished, and it's only a matter of time. That's what God's kingdom says, and that God gets what God wants. So that's the good news right there. And all of a sudden, this Easter message is a little less boring. <laughs> and they kill Jesus. And why do they kill Jesus? Well, they kill Jesus because anytime we try to subvert power, power wants to kill. That's what power does. And I want to take a second. I want to sit in Jesus' crucifixion. I know it's not Good Friday, but I love Good Friday. I love that, that Jesus was killed, and that sounds odd, but here's why. Because what it shows us is that God is suffering with us. So for any of us who have ever been hurt by an unjust power system, struck by an unjust power system, killed by an unjust power system, Jesus is right there with us, suffering with us. Any of us who are, consider ourselves queer and we've been too afraid to come out because we're afraid we're going to be beaten or killed and we're suffering, Jesus suffers with us in that crucifixion. Anytime there's a victim of gun violence and there's pain that is unbearable, Jesus suffers with us. And then, like I said, it's personal too. Anytime we have our issues, anytime we struggle with depression and anxiety in such a way where we can't even get out of bed, Jesus suffers with us. Anytime we have this addiction that, that just leaves us trapped, Jesus suffers with us. Anytime we have that unspoken thing, that relationship, that brokenness, whatever it is, we know that on Good Friday, Jesus suffers with us. And that's not boring. That's actually incredible. But the good news of the resurrection is that we don't live in that place. We're not stuck in that place. The, the, the turning of the other cheek is a foretell of everything that's to come, of the kingdom that is to come, of the collective that is to come. And Jesus says, because I'm alive, it will come. There's hope that it's coming. And this is what happens. This is what it says. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb and there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance like lightning and his clothes were white as snow and the guards were so afraid of him they shook, that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead 
and is going ahead of you to Galilee. I love this. It makes me laugh because what's going on is that like, we want to find the one who tried to subvert the power and then power killed him. And the angel's like, nah, power didn't kill him. He's not here. Power's about to die. You want to know, uh, you want to know about the Jesus? Uh, where's the Jesus that, that, that brought up those who were lower and told those who were higher they needed to come down on this level? Well, they tried to kill him for that, but he's not here. He's not here. And so that unjust system is about to go. Where's the Jesus uh, who, who said that, that women are on the same plane as men, who, who said patriarchy doesn't matter, who later tells us that we're all one in Jesus Christ? Well, that Jesus, well, they tried to kill him for that. He's not here any longer. And so that patriarchy, it's dying. That is the good news of the resurrection. My sin issue, my addiction, my depression, my anxiety, it has a grip on me now. But the resurrection tells me it doesn't have to have a grip on me always. It tells me that this is not the end. It tells me that this is my beginning because Jesus is alive. He's not here. And so we started off by saying, you know, I want an Easter that speaks to gun violence. I said that. And, and, and I can imagine, you know, going and saying, where's the children? Where are the children that have been victims of this kind of violence? And coming to a place where they say, well, they're not here any longer because there is no such thing. They're alive. What about the people who have been killed from unjust systems? What about people of color who, who have experienced terrible racism and marginalization and all the rest? Uh, where are they? Where are those victims? No, they're not here either because Jesus is resurrected, so they're alive. Imagine that. Imagine, where's the, the queer children who, who, who saw no other way out, and so they took their life because they were afraid of what was going to happen if they came out? No, that's not a thing anymore. They're alive. They're not here. They're alive. That is what the resurrection does for us, the collective, the whole. That's the good news. And you know what? It's not boring because it's not about me. Although it being about me is good. Although being about me matters. But it's about all of us. It's about the fact that all of us get to look at something like patriarchy and we get to point to our scriptures and we go, patriarchy is funny because the first people that found Jesus alive were women. It meant they're the first preachers, teachers, missionaries. Let's do something about that. Jesus is alive. Jesus doesn't, the, the unjust systems don't stop Jesus. Jesus is alive, which means we get to stop unjust systems. Jesus is alive. There's hope that it gets better. Children dying. We get to stop that. Jesus is alive. There is hope in that. That is the good news. And so today, I want you to hear this good news. I want you to hear that Jesus died for your sins. I want you to hear that. And I want you to hear that that's good news. And I want you to hear that's just half the good news. That's just part of the good news. But the good news is that Jesus is dying for the whole thing and is raised again to tell us that the whole thing, the brokenness, the violence, the pain, the bullying, the oppression, the marginalization, that doesn't get the last word. And we get a chance to change that. So today I invite you to sit in that good news. Sit in the good news that it does not get the last word. And today, I want you to look at yourself. And maybe today it's just enough to know that you're struggling. I have a friend who said, Jonathan, addiction feels like a boot on my neck and I can't get up. And today, to my friend and to anybody else who feels that way, that is not your last word. There is hope because of the resurrection. Today there's that unspoken thing, that depression, anxiety. I deal with it too. And today's the day we get to say that doesn't get the last word. There is hope because of the resurrection. 
And then today, we get to check, check ourselves. We get to say, have I contributed to systems that are unjust, unjust? Systems that have contributed to the oppression or marginalization of others? Because if so, I check that, because that thing doesn't get the last word. The resurrection tells me otherwise. And if I contributed in any way to, to the hurting of someone else who has been told that they're separate from God because of their orientation, well, I'm going to check that because that does not get the last word. This resurrection story isn't boring because it's not just Jesus came to die for your sins. It's Jesus came to change the entire system and shows it by telling us to turn the other cheek. He dies because of it. But that doesn't get the last word. He is no longer here. He is risen. He is alive. And for me, I read John 3.16 a little differently today. Just by me saying John 3.16, how many people know what that is? A bunch of us. For God so loved the world. The world, not just a little bit of it, all of it. That God gave God's only son. That whosoever believes doesn't die from injustice or gunshots or bullying, from not having enough, from washing up on shores, from broken systems, from sin. But whoever believes has eternal life here in the kingdom of God. That is what gets the last word, and that's the good news of Easter. That's why it's not boring. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for such a message as this that tells us that collective brokenness will not win. That collective systems will not win. That our own personal pain will not win. Thank you for telling us the story that says this thing's both personal and communal. And for reminding us that Christ is alive. And I want us, God, I want us to have the courage to imagine what it could look like when those things end. Bring that to us. Light a fire under us to begin that process of bringing your kingdom here. We pray this in your name. Amen.